0: I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. This is the second of our CounterCurrents Book Club live streams. And today I'm going to be joined by two guests. Mark Gullick won't be joining us probably because he's having some technical difficulties. But in the first hour, we're going to be talking to F. Roger Devlin. And in the second hour, we're going to bring in Mike Maxwell, all the way from the other side of the planet. So let's introduce, first of all, Roger Devlin. Roger, welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Hello. Yes. Glad
0: to be here. Yes, you're unmuted now. Yes. Well, I would love to get your thoughts about the trial of Socrates because I wrote it. You did write a blurb for it. And yes. I think it's a little awkward, maybe, that I'm in effect interviewing you about oh. my book. I didn't really think how that would how that would work. But let's just have a conversation yes, about exactly. about the book and see if people out there in Radioland have any questions and comments themselves. If you have questions and comments and you'd like to do them with a Super Chat attached, that will get our attention immediately. The best way to do that is to look at the screen. There's a streamer across the bottom. It says entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents, no hyphen. Just go there. You can click the green button. We're not streaming at Entropy, but you can take out your credit card and leave a super chat, which is very much appreciated. Those things help us pay the bills and keep the lights on. So thank you very much in advance. And if you would also like to send tips through Odyssey, those are most gratefully received and we will definitely read and discuss your questions. And finally, you can send uh, tokens. You can send tokens through DLive. DLive has dwindled a bit in uh, viewership, but there's absolutely no excuse for me not being able to remember the name. So anyway, DLive allows you to send us tokens, uh, and we very much appreciate those. We cash those in at the end of each year, and it helps us with our fundraising goals. So without further ado, let's just talk uh, about this book and see what uh, Roger has to say. Roger Devlin has a PhD in philosophy like myself, so he's eminently qualified to converse with me about this. He actually wrote a blurb for the book, for which I'm very grateful. Mark Gulick also wrote a, a blurb for the book. And recently he told me that he was re- reading the platonic dialogues that i cover or some of the dialogues that i cover in this book in the original greek which puts him head and shoulders above me <laughs> in terms of scholarship so i'm just going to bow down before roger devlin and ask uh what did you think what are your thoughts
1: well i i i reread the book uh just the last couple of days for this for this broadcast i think when I wrote the blurb, for some reason I didn't have the Fido chapter, the last chapter of the book, because that was all new to me when I read it last night. Uh, it's all it's all wonderful. Maybe I was wondering if if you'd like to begin by talking a little bit about the Open University and how the how the book came to be written. It it began as a lecture course, didn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right. It was a a group called the Invisible College. Uh, back in the nineties, I was living in Atlanta. Or in the Atlanta area. And there was a fellow who started a group that did adult education classes under the name the Humanities Forum. And he ended up going off to do graduate coursework at Emory. And I ended up teaching the Humanities Forum classes for a while. And I, I had a little group of students that I, some of whom I Inherited from him, and then I kept adding new people to it. And eventually I decided to change the name to the Invisible College because I, I liked that name. It was a, a term used to describe the Rosicrucians. And it was a, a truly invisible college because we'd meet together in various places uh, in bookstores, in the offices of people who were students, in the houses of people who were students. And so we would materialize in different places. But we were a group and we we're pretty tightly knit. There were, I would say there are about 12 core people and uh, maybe 12 more who would take occasional classes. And so I, I would always have at least 12 to 15 people taking these courses. And I did a lot of classes. I covered a, a whole bunch of the history of philosophy. I did some literature. I did some psychology. I did Freud. I did Jung. I did some just a little bit of history, a smattering of history, but mostly it was the history of philosophy. And there was a, a great love of Plato uh, amongst the students, and I take some credit for that. I was and I wanted to teach Plato, uh, and they really got into it. So it was easy for me to keep teaching Plato classes. And I don't remember how many Plato classes I taught. I think I taught at least six courses on Plato. I did yeah, two runs.
1: Education, yeah, this, yeah. This sounds, this sounds very interesting to me because, of course, you know the 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 mainstream institutes of higher education are becoming so hostile to us. It it sounds like a a, a model that that might be worth developing in other places that that deserves to be. You know, the Irish uh, were at one time barred from British institutions the hedge Uh, schools right yeah they ran hedge schools they would they would they would have meet uh behind hedges with priests so that the you know the british authorities couldn't catch them and and that's probably what our people are going to end up having to do you know
0: yeah uh donald livingston at emory actually used the hedge school analogy years ago he introduced me to that little chapter in history and i thought that was fascinating Jonathan Bowden, when he came and spoke at a countercurrents retreat in Santa Cruz back in 2012, uh, described countercurrents as a kind of right-wing online university. And in a way, the stuff that I was doing in the 90s with the Invisible College was a sketch for that. And oddly enough, some of the people who attended those classes were quite to the right. In fact, they were to mm-hmm. the right of me. <laughs> and yeah. they they were the kind of people you would expect to take adult education Classes in philosophy. They were intelligent people. Uh, Some of them were lawyers. Others had backgrounds in philosophy and just wanted to keep a a toe in it. There were a couple of people, though, I, I remember this very distinctly. I decided I wanted to teach a class on Paul Johnson's Modern Times. It was the first time I taught a history book, and it was good for discussion. And it was in that class, I believe, that there were three students two of whom were just chatting one day about David Irving. And I, I didn't know oh. who David Irving was, but this, and they said, oh yes, there's this trial that he's going to have over his writings with, with this Emory professor, you know, who attacked him, blah, blah, blah. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And there is a, an, there were two other students in there, actually, who were American Renaissance readers. <laughs> one of whom was this uh, Jewish woman, actually, who told me that, uh, she would have joined the KKK, but they wouldn't let her because she was yeah, Jewish, yeah. which I thought that was hilarious. But she was a very good friend. And it was very interesting. So there were actually four people like that in this class. Yeah. They're a couple libertarians. And it was interesting because especially the Vera, the Jewish lady, they gave me permission in a way to, I don't know, inquire further about certain topics. And it gave me some encouragement to inquire further about certain topics. And since the book was on 20th century history, there were all kinds of hot button topics there. So I, I found that kind of fascinating. I It was my first encounter in some ways with dissident right people. And this was in the uh-huh. late 1990s. So yeah. anyway, uh, I taught on, I taught the Republic twice. I taught this course once. I taught a course on called What Socrates Knew, which focused on the Gorgias and the Alcibiades One, I taught a course called The Myths of Plato, which dealt with the Timaeus primarily. Mm -hmm. And I taught a class called An Introduction to Philosophical, like Platonic Dialogues. That was a a short class. I also taught a class on the entirety of the Phaedo, and that was the sequel to the Trial of Socrates class. Uh So we went on to do six weeks on the Fido and I have the recordings of that and I might might get them transcribed. You can do that with AI transcription programs. Now it's amazingly accurate and Mm -hmm. fast. And I might just feed them through the machine and get a rough transcript and look at them to uh, decide if there's a book in there or not. Some of these are just too rough to be turned into books, but what the trial of Socrates was based on was a lot of classes that I'd been teaching over the years at, as an adjunct teacher at Morehouse college, believe it or not, uh, I, I had been teaching uh, the, the four texts on Socrates mm-hmm. anthology that Thomas West and Grace Story West had put together in oh, yeah. introduction to philosophy classes. And so I had been teaching the clouds, the apology, the cryo, uh, and, the, and the euthyphro, quite a lot. And so when I went into this class, it was very easy for me to just sit and speak pretty much without notes. The only lecture where I had extensive notes was the last one on the thedo because I hadn't taught that before. Although I had a small discussion group with a mm-hmm. couple of Emory students where we read through it together. So that was fortunate because the tape of the Fido lecture got lost, oh. but I had the notes and that's probably why you didn't see it because originally I was going to publish this without the Fido chapter. Oh, okay. And then I found it <laughs> and oh, I realized, okay. Oh yeah, wait, I can actually, I had a, uh, I had a folder with the notes in it. Um, in, in that were, that was filed away in the U S in, 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 storage. But I went back at the beginning of last year and I went through my uh, storage and I found the, the Fido folder and I, I looked at it and I was amazed at how detailed all the notes were. And I thought I, I could just start typing this in <laughs> and uh, without a whole lot of effort, uh, turn it into a pretty good facsimile of what I actually said in the, in the class. And so that's what I did. And that's how it got finished
1: okay good well the the, the uh, uh one passage in the fi- i call it the fido is uh there's no there's no uh universally accepted standard on how to pronounce these uh greek names in uh, in english uh but in any case there there's a there's a passage that you do discuss in the chapter on the on on the fido about um socrates as a natural philosopher as uh you might say a pre socratic philosopher his Mm -hmm. interest in natural causation when he was young, that might be a good place for us to start our our discussion.
0: Yeah. The the basic story, I guess, that I I lay out in this book is, well, I I have to explain how Socrates came to be at the end of his life on trial for impiety. And... He talks about two sets of accusers. The first accuser was basically Aristophanes in his play, The Clouds, about a quarter century before, who portrays Socrates as what we now call a pre-Socratic philosopher, meaning that he was a materialist of sorts, an atheist
1: investigating uh, the things in the heavens and under the earth is I exactly what he says yes yeah and that was that, that was also a kind of a common it was it, you know philosophers had a reputation like this the, the, this is just what people said about philosophers in general they don't believe in the gods and they investigate things in the heavens and under the earth I in a way they were they were they were criticizing socrates as just uh like a generic philosopher when they said things like this
0: yeah And what I argue is that there is evidence that there was some truth to this claim. Mm -hmm. Now, in the apology, Socrates has to deny it outright, I think. Uh, And he denies it outright simply because it wouldn't be very convincing for him to say, yes, yes, all of that is true. But guys, I've changed. I've evolved. Let me explain to you how I've evolved. Because they'll hear the admission and all the rest will be tuned out. And so it, it's it's equivalent to just a confession of guilt. So he couldn't do a yes, but defense. He had to defend his whole life. And that's unfortunate. That meant that he had to conceal certain things. Uh, however, when he's talking to his friends on the last day of his life, which is uh, the Fido, uh, he talks about his intellectual autobiography. Uh, he talks about his, his history and how when he was young, he says he was very interested in the investigation of nature. and I was
1: was remarkably keen on the branch of knowledge that they call the investigation of nature, for it seemed to me a splendid thing to know the causes of why each thing comes into being, why it perishes, and why it exists. That's essentially what was the task of the pre-Socratic philosophers from Thales down to Anaxagoras and Empedocles and Socrates' own time,
0: exactly. Mm. And he, the, the 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 problem that he had ultimately with pre-Socratic philosophy was that it was materialistic, it was reductionistic, it didn't really understand mind. Now, it would talk about mind, for instance. Uh, Anaxagoras. Anaxagoras would talk about mind. Anaxagoras was an older contemporary of Socrates. Socrates took great interest in his work. Anaxagoras was the first philosopher that the Athenians ran out of town. The second was the sophist Protagoras. And Socrates didn't flee. And so he ended up on trial and then he was executed. But Protagoras' ship sank in the harbor, so he was he was sort of killed by the Athenians uh, uh, in in a way. If he hadn't been on that ship, he might have continued to to teach for many years to come. But the Anaxagoras
1: yeah, the, the, was was an a associate of Pericles, I believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Anaxagoras talked about mind. And-
1: yes, he was the, he was the, fir- he was the first uh, philosopher who cited some kind of non-material principle. Philosophy began in, in uh, Eastern Greece where people were speculating about whether the basic substance of the world was water or air or some other thing. And, and Anaxagoras caught Socrates' attention because he, he talked about mind, nous, as one of the forces of nature. Aristotle said somewhere that, that uh, Anaxagoras was to the other pre-Socratic philosophers like a sober man amid a crowd of drunks, because he was, <laughs> he was the only one who didn't have an exclusively material view of nature. Nevertheless, Socrates was not very satisfied with the way in which Anaxagoras used the concept of mind.
0: Yeah, he used the concept of mind in the way that a lot of contemporary philosophers of mind would use it uh, today, which is to say it's not uh, a a genuinely adequate account of what we mean by mind. And uh, it's not exactly clear what mind is for Anaxagoras, but it seems to be some kind of finely divided matter. And the the thing that most frustrated Socrates about Anaxagoras is that all causation was mechanical. Mm-hmm. And he actually talks about how the Anaxagorean explanation for why Socrates would be in jail, sitting in jail, talking to his friends, would simply be that his hip bone is connected to his thigh bone and his thigh bone is connected to his knee bone. And these, they're joints here. And so they can bend in such a way that Socrates can actually sit in jail. And, but Socrates very musingly says, but, but, you know, friends, if I hadn't thought it was the best thing for me to stay here in jail, and suffer the consequences, these bones would have been out of here a long time ago. And so what he's trying to say is that to really understand the world, and especially human beings and their behavior, let's just start with human beings and their behavior, you have to understand intentions, you have to understand purpose or goals. Uh, You can't just talk about material causes the hip bone and the thigh bone and the other stuff like that you've got to talk about the reasons that people have in their minds for the things that they do and there's a there's a passage that's in xenophon's memorabilia where you find socrates defending a very all-encompassing idea that everything has a purpose not just human action, not just animals, but the whole universe is ordered towards the good. Now, this is a maximally metaphysical teaching about providence, all right? The the, the world is ordered in some way by mind for the good.
1: It should be said that there, the Socrates does say something like that in the Fido itself. He's, he says that he was looking like an, an for explanations like, well, if the world is round or not round, or in the center or not in the center of the universe, the the kind of explanation that he was seeking was that it it, it should be the way it is because it's the best for it to be that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. What, with so something this is- like
1: what we would call a teleological explanation, I guess, of, of yeah. nature.
0: Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's it's a teleological view of nature, and it goes far beyond just explaining human behavior in terms of people's opinions about what the best thing to do is, to explaining animal behavior in terms of goods or goals, uh, and explaining even physical things like the, the shape and the position of the earth in terms of what is best. Now, a lot of people will abandon that kind of metaphysics. Uh, that's, that's the kind of theistic metaphysics that Leibniz defended right? The the best of all possible worlds. This is completely consistent with later developments of Christianity, for instance. But you already see this encompassing teleological metaphysics with Socrates. And this is not Greek natural philosophy. This This is something new. This is something revolutionarily new. And you see it in Plato, You see elements of this in Aristotle, of course. Aristotle talks about teleology. And the Stoics were very much influenced by this. In fact, the Stoics were very influenced by the Socrates of Xenophon's memorabilia. And Stoic cosmology and the Stoic idea of providence and the the universe being ordered for the best is really based on the Socrates of, of Xenophon. But there's... Ample evidence of that kind of view in the in the Socrates of Plato, as well as you point out. Mm, yes.
1: Shall we go on and talk about Aristophanes uh, and the clouds, which was yeah. one of your best chapters? I uh, yeah.
0: thank you. Well, I I love the clouds, and I was really thunderstruck when I first read the clouds because I was, I guess, as an undergraduate. Uh, enamored of the idea that Socrates was really an innocent victim of uh, religious intolerance and uh, political chicanery, and that there was nothing, nothing at all to these accusations, and that he was a victim of prejudice. And When I read Aristophanes' Clouds and got to know a little bit about Aristophanes, I realized, oh no, there's another side to this because you can't say that Aristophanes was vulgar or dumb. In fact, the more I studied Aristophanes, the more I became convinced that Aristophanes himself is a philosophical thinker. And in fact, you can see the sketch of a lot of Socratic ideas in Aristophanes. And I, th- I think that Socrates learned a lot from Aristophanes, which I think is why they're portrayed on friendly terms in Plato's symposium, uh, which was a set a few years after the premiere of the clouds. So uh, Aristophanes is not somebody to, to simply dismiss as a vulgar, prejudiced person against Socrates. And so I started studying this very carefully and I I became convinced that a Aristophanes is a philosopher and B as I reread the Apology and the Phaedo especially, I came to think that, yes, there, there's a tacit admission going on here. Not so tacit. There's an admission here that Socrates really did get into natural philosophy as a young man. There was some truth to this portrayal of him, but it unfortunately wasn't true by the time he was put on trial. And in fact, he had become a powerful critic of the imperfections and the dangers of, of natural philosophy. And in some, of, in some of his criticisms, you can see the influence of, of Aristophanes himself. It's
1: a very bold interpretation, I should say, because you know, Socrates was about 46 or 47 when the clouds was produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the in the Fido, he 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 uh seems to dismiss his his youthful infatuation with natural philosophy as a passing phase, but he'd been an adult for a quarter of a quarter of a century by the time the, the clouds was produced. Mm-hmm. nevertheless it even, even i i don't know you know we can't know for sure what what socrates views were in exactly 423 bc when the clouds were produced but he may have he he may have started out from that uh, from a from a position similar to what uh Aristophanes describes in any case. yeah and he
0: may have gotten way beyond that by the time the clouds came out and uh, might have been extremely annoyed <laughs> that uh, you know he was being um pilloried for beliefs that he had gotten beyond uh, I, I in fact I think that's quite, p- quite possible quite possible
1: like, some of the, some of the platonic dialogues are, are have a dramatic date that is a that goes back at least that far, like the Protagoras, the dialogue called the Protagoras, which doesn't does not show Socrates as a pre-Socratic philosopher. Still, right, you know, it, it's a very interesting interpretation.
0: Mm-hmm. So I I think that the the Clouds is a is a genuinely philosophical work, and in it he displays the underlying connection between two schools of thought that on the surface looked very opposed to one another. And those were the natural philosophers and the sophists. And the sophists were itinerant teachers of rhetoric. They were highly paid professionals. They they taught a kind of wisdom, but it was wisdom understood as technique. And specifically as techniques of persuasion and the exercise of political power. They were political scientists and rhetoricians. They would go to the cities like Athens, and they would put on speeches, basically. They display their wares, and then they would take students under their wings who could pay them uh, huge fees to teach them the, the art of public speaking and a certain philosophy that went along with it. And a lot of sophistry is, is really what we have call, come to call sophistry uh, later, you know, cheap rhetorical and tricks, logical fallacies and so forth. But beyond that, it is a philosophy. And it's, it's a philosophy of getting ahead by being unscrupulous about manipulating public opinion. And, the
1: young, the young yeah. men would be would be uh, like offspring of wealthy families who had political ambitions. They wanted to shine in the uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the uh, Athenian assembly. They wanted to attain high position and perhaps generalships. That, those were the kind of people that the sophists appealed to. And that's why yeah. they had so much money to to pay them. They, they, the sophists were were. Supposedly going to teach them how to get ahead in politics through the clever use of speech.
0: Yeah. And the the cynicism that the sophists had about using public opinion was really a product of natural philosophy, because what natural philosophy did was argue or... It didn't so much argue it; it presumed it. It presumed that everything good is unchanging, and this is a deep Greek metaphysical presupposition: that if something changes, it's less good than things that stay the same. The, the travel, uh, you know, you see this in the travels, uh, you know, of Herodotus the, in his histories. As the Greeks traveled around, they observed people with different customs, and yet they, they noticed that nature stayed the same, even though custom was highly variable. And if nature is what's good and custom is highly variable, then if you really take the natural philosopher's assumption about nature seriously, custom becomes somewhat contemptible. And then you can feel, and and so much of what morality was for the Greeks were you know, tales from Homer and long hallowed customs about what's virtuous. And these things started looking quite arbitrary. Uh, not grounded in nature. Not grounded in nature. And yet, if you were sufficiently clever in manipulating these opinions in the minds of your fellow citizens, you could gain huge advantages over them and the, the the Sophists taught that that that's what they taught, and they got a bad reputation because they they became known as corruptors, basically yeah, as immoralists,
1: uh, you know yeah, people yeah. were encouraging encouraging people to turn away from the inherited morality the the ways mm-hmm. of the fathers
0: yeah and 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 Socrates at his trial was accused of being a natural philosopher and a corrupter of the youth, thereby a corrupter of the youth. And there was a third term there, which was a disbeliever in the gods, because natural philosophy was very much connected with atheism as as the Greeks understood it. The natural philosophers would not hesitate to say that the highest principle of their system, whether it's air or the indefinite or water or whatever, is in some sense divine. But the the Greeks would look at that and think, uh, this just seems like patronizing us. These people really don't believe in the gods of the city. They might believe that there are natural forces that are quote unquote divine, but they don't believe in the gods of the city. And the gods of the city are crucially important because belief in the gods of the city is the foundation of ethics And mores, it's the glue that holds society together. And therefore, if you teach that the gods are basically arbitrary convention, nature is divine, but nature doesn't really care about us. There's no teleology. There's no providence. Nature doesn't care about us. Uh, Then you're undermining Uh, the the foundations of social order. You're you're dissolving the glue that holds society together. And this is a, a, a dangerous thing. And so I see in Aristophanes an understanding of that. But Aristophanes is not a partisan of the ancestral Athenian way as such. Because he also gives you plenty of evidence in the uh, in the clouds to, to show how weak it is. So there's a, dis- a debate in the clouds between two characters. One is called the, the just speech and the other the unjust speech. And the just speech is basically a defender of Athenian traditional morals and the unjust speech is a sophist. And the just speech stands for all the things that Aristophanes would like to defend. And yet the way that Aristophanes writes their debate shows just how weak the just speech is and how he can't defend himself from the unjust speech. And so uh, one of the things that I I, I spent a bit of time on is, is discussing how Aristophanes lays out a different foundation for ancestral customs besides just tradition. He he tries to base it in some way on an understanding of nature, including defending basically religious teachings, not because they're true, but because they are useful tools of moral education that Respect the fact that there's a natural inequality between people. Uh, and beyond that, just the fact that when you're young, which is when you need moral education, uh, obviously you're not going to be receptive to Kant's categorical imperative or something like that. You know, The, the idea that we can simply broom out religion, uh, broom out Homer, broom out the, the moralists that actually taught the Greeks how to to live together, broom them out, and then replace them with some abstract philosophical theory, ignores the fact that most people don't get philosophy. Even philosophers don't agree with one another on these things. And the idea that we can somehow, first of all, purge society of, of moral opinions, and then we'll just sort of somehow get along while philosophers work out a rational replacement and then teach it to the rest of us. It's just craziness. So what Aristophanes seems to indicate is that we've, we've got to preserve ancestral moral teachings, but we, we have to, uh, we have to purge them in some ways of some inadequacies that they have.
1: They have to be able to defend themselves for one thing. The, the, yeah. Sof, the, 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 the Aristophanes admits that the Sophists are cleverer speakers than the than the. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, advocates of the uh, traditional ways. Yeah. So it's it, it's it's kind of like. For, uh, a move from uh, unthinking traditionalism to a kind of conscious conservatism, I guess, yeah. that, you, that you see yeah. occurring. And, you
0: know, yeah, you know, there's a, a section uh, called The Weaknesses of the Just Speech, where I lay this out. Uh, first of all, the just speech doesn't know the art of rhetoric. Uh, persuasion is an art, which means it is morally neutral. You can persuade people of good things as well as of bad things. So it's foolish to allow scoundrels to practice rhetoric, but not learn rhetoric oneself to fight them. The just speech doesn't know rhetoric because he begins by insulting his audience. Whereas the unjust speech begins by flattering them, which is a clear sign of superior rhetorical skill. So that's the first thing that that the reflective conservatives, conservative needs to learn. He needs to learn the art of rhetoric. The second thing is um, the just speech doesn't know how to defend the natural inequality between human beings or between human beings and gods and also natural authority. And this comes out in, in, a, in, in a discussion of specifically the gods. Heracles took warm baths. So how is it that if Heracles takes warm baths, the just speech says that you should take cold baths and be tough. Uh, And the, you know, it's, it's a good question. And the proper response is, well, look, Heracles is quasi divine. He's not going to be made soft by taking a warm bath. Yes. Whereas you being made out of meaner stuff, need to be tougher. And that's why you need to take cold baths. There's, there's also uh, an inability to defend the difference between parents and children and the authority over parents uh, of parents over children, the authority of the gods over, over men. Uh, when this comes out in the Euthyphro, Euthyphro mm-hmm. basically says that piety is doing as the gods do not as the gods say.
1: And the gods do everything that is considered disgraceful among human beings.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: You read Homer, you'll find the gods committing adultery and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, if the gods are holy and the gods commit adultery, then why can't we commit adultery? Well, the answer that you have to put forward is, well, there's a difference between gods and us. Uh, or, or, they, else, or else the stories
1: about the gods are simply untrue. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. exactly. Which is but
1: ultimately, what Socrates does later on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah uh, so you know, your, your parents tell you, you you need to be in bed by nine o'clock, but they don't go to bed at nine o'clock. And the response to that is yes, but things are different between you. I am your parent, yeah, yeah, I am your parents right the 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 just speech doesn't get that, and so the unjust speech can make mincemeat of his positions by pointing out in hypocrisies basically hypocrisies of the gods who preach things that they don't practice and parents who preach things that they don't practice. but if you understand there's a natural inequality and a natural authority here, then those arguments fall flat. So that's a very, very important thing. Um, A third weakness is that the just speech appeals to myth and poets to back up his education. And yet, again, the Greek myths were were full of very bad moral examples. And again, you can say, well, we're supposed to do as the gods say, not as the gods do. So that's, that's one way out of it. But still, wouldn't it be better if the gods were... Well, PG rated, uh, more uh, more upstanding citizens of the universe, and so there there's a there's a, a very very unsteady foundation when you try and and put you know religion, especially Greek religion, under under morals, and therefore maybe we should look for steadier foundations, and that would be in nature. And then there's, there's another weakness that the just speech has, which is. Again, it's related to this. He can't tolerate human failure. As soon as the just speech points out, uh, uh, the, unjust the unjust speech, speech. Yeah. the unjust speech points out that people are hypocrites, then he just abandons his moral standards. But you can't do that. If if you uphold moral standards, then you have to be somewhat tolerant of the fact that people will fail them. And this is just realism, again, about human nature. If you have high standards, more people will fail to meet them. The higher your standards, the fewer people who will meet them. And if you can't accept that fact, then the only thing you can do is abandon your standards. You can lower your standards so more people pass, which is sort of the thing that we're doing in, in our society public today. School,
1: yes, that's, the way, that's yeah. the way public schools work. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. You know, if you want to maintain high standards, you simply have to be willing to say, yes, a lot of people fail to meet these standards, but we've got to maintain these standards anyway, because human nature being what it is, if they have no standards of all, at all, they'll be far worse than if they try and fail to meet high standards of behavior. I, I think that's a really powerful position that you can, you can read out of this uh, play. And, and the last thing is that there's no place for pleasure in the, the virtues that are extolled by the just speech. Whereas the unjust speech, appeals to hedonism. And so the, the way to respond to that is you've got to teach that virtue has its pleasures too. It can't just be, if you, if you don't do the right thing, you'll be, you'll be thrashed, right? You've got to, you've got to teach people the, that there are refined pleasures in virtue. And if you look at somebody like Aristotle, for instance, Aristotle's ethics, you can see that there, there are certain pleasures that go along with, with the good life. So, uh, I, I think that Aristophanes is a first rate philosopher, and that uh, in some ways he's the model of the Platonic, Socratic Platonic philosophy the, that's to come. So, I, I think that he's, he's the first philosopher in the Western tradition who could be called a humanist as opposed to a natural philosopher he's the first philosopher in the western tradition for whom we have fully extant texts
1: it's commonly said that socrates brought philosophy down to earth and was the first to concern himself with the things of the city as opposed yeah. to the things in the heavens and under the earth but according to your interpretation it was really it was really the influence of uh, aristophanes that brought about that uh, that shift in orientation.
0: Well, he could have already had that shift underway. Uh, We just don't know. But I I do think that you can see that shift has taken place in Aristophanes and that he is a philosopher and he's a philosopher who's particularly concerned with morals and the effect of natural philosophy on the collapse of, of morality. And he's searching for a new foundation of morality that's not just traditional. And that opens the way to ideas of what's right by nature, as as opposed to right by convention. And that's a revolutionary idea. Yes. No.
1: Well, one of, one of my favorite chapters of your book is uh, concerned with a little dialogue that isn't much read these days called the Theages. In fact, in my Plato's complete works here, I see that the editors inform us solemnly that this couldn't possibly have been written by Plato. There are actually several little dialogues like this that have come down to us that are widely disregarded. But uh, Plato's writings were preserved in the academy, which he founded, which lasted over a thousand years. And, uh, according to your interpretation, the Theoges is a very interesting uh, response on, on Plato's part to Aristophanes. Would you like to, to tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I love the Theoges, And the only reason that I can recall from the various classicists, I think this was a 19th century thing, primarily to, to exclude the Theages, The one argument that I remember was that it was that they thought the superstitiousness at the end, the ghost stories that Socrates was telling was was beneath Socrates, that Socrates Mm -hmm. couldn't be so superstitious. But on my reading, this isn't in earnest at all. uh, And this is very much part of his educational goal, which is to... um, basically fob off the student, get rid of this potential student, Theages. And the the dramatic situation of the Theages is very much precisely analogous to the dramatic situation of the clouds. Because in the clouds, you have a country gentleman named Strepsiades who has a son named Pheidippides. And he wants to take, he wants to place Pheidippides Uh, With a teacher, Socrates, and he wants the Socrates to teach him uh, how to make the weaker speak the strong, speech the stronger. He wants to make him into a sophist, basically. He he wants Socrates to corrupt his son so he can get out of uh, paying his debts.
1: debts. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now in the Theages, you have a country gentleman named Demodocus or demodocus, demodocus I don't yeah. yeah Uh demodocus who's probably a general there's a, a general by that name uh, in uh... mentioned by Thucydides yeah yeah exactly and he has a, th- a, a son named Theages now he brings theages to Socrates because he the, the lad wants to ha- uh, go to a teacher. Uh, he because says he wants great. wisdom. He wants wisdom, yeah. yeah. And the father wants to place him with Socrates because he thinks that Socrates wouldn't corrupt his son, whereas these other teachers of wisdom, these sophists, uh, were shady characters, and he's been worried that his son might fall in with a bad crowd. And so he wants Socrates to take him on as a student to prevent him from being corrupted. I, I think this is a wonderfully apologetic portrayal of Socrates. It's it's a defense from the accusations of the clouds and therefore a defense against the accusations lodged in the apology. So what does Socrates do? He begins to question Theages and he tries to determine whether or not he would be a good student. And this is very unlike the Socrates of the clouds. The Socrates of the clouds has this little think tank, the thinkery, and it has these pretenses of being esoteric and having initiations and basically standards for admission. And yet it doesn't really practice those. And so any fool, and Strepsiades is, is quite like a strepsiety. fool, Yeah, yeah he, can, he can become a student there. And this is a disaster for Socrates in the clouds. And so what we see in the Theages by Plato is a very different Socrates, a Socrates who is very concerned to interview this young man to see if he's a suitable student. And at a certain point, he decides no. He he's not a suitable student, and so what does he do? Well, he he tries to first of all he tries to uh, place him with any other teacher besides himself. Uh, he says, "Well, why don't you uh, you know just sort of follow one of the older gentlemen of the city and and learn." from him and uh and
1: is like like most of the young men from wealthy families he wants to cut a figure in the city he wants to have a political career and yeah. that, so, so socrates asks him like what is this w- socrates asks him to explain this wisdom that he is seeking and it it you know it uh, first he asks him you know do you want the wisdom of a you know a ship captain or a yeah shoemaker and and, and no the, no that's not right and it, and it becomes clear that what, what he's really after is uh, be becoming an eminent man in the assembly or or in uh, the military in, in politics and, and and war essentially which is yeah. after all what most what most of the young wealthy uh, young men in, in Athens had their hearts set on but it you know it doesn't its relation to philosophy is problematic.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, the, the subtitle of the Theages is on wisdom. And mm-hmm. the, the question becomes, well, what is wisdom? And I take the view that for Socrates, wisdom is the ability to make right use of all things. And th- this, this is sort of hinted at in the dialogue. It's hinted at more clearly in other dialogues like the Euthydemus, but, at, but again, at a certain point, and it's not really clear why, but at a certain point, Socrates doesn't want to take this lad on. And so he's, he tries to fob him off on other people. He even tries to go to, to get him to, to go to one of the sophists, which is really interesting. Now, if you have the assumption that Socrates wants to do what's best for Theages, then... It's very interesting. He recognizes that philosophy can corrupt certain people, that philosophy is not good for some people, and that even sophists might be less damaging to this young lad than philosophy, which I think is fascinating. Uh, that, that is that is definitely implied by his his attempt to say, well, why don't you try the sophists? Uh, and uh, in the end, what he has to do, because Theages is quite dogged, he's a little bulldog, and doesn't want to let go of Socrates, Socrates finally resorts to a ghost story, in effect. And uh, Socrates has this thing that he refers to as the daimonion. And the daimonion is his little voice that comes to him and tells him not to do things. He talks about this in a number of dialogues. And he talks Apology. about it, quite, yeah, in the Apology. He talks about it quite prominently in the Theoges. And in the Theoges, what I argue is that uh Daimonion really is a personification of Socrates's understanding of human nature which he doesn't have in the portrayal of the clouds. In the Theages, he has an understanding of human nature that allows him to determine who is benefited potentially by philosophy and who would be harmed by it. And so what he does is he personifies this ability to distinguish between soul types with this thing called the Daimonion. He also describes this as his knowledge of erotic things
1: mm-hmm.
0: yes. uh, in the dialogue. And in the Theages and also in the Symposium, he says that he does know something. The, the claim that Socrates goes around denying that he has knowledge is, is actually quite false. There are many knowledge claims that Socrates makes, but they they have to do with human things and the human soul and as he puts it, uh, the erotic things. Now, if you look at dialogues like the Symposium and the Phaedrus, the soul is understood in terms of eros, in terms of love. And so to talk about erotic things is to talk about the forces that animate the soul, basically. And many of Plato's dialogues, especially The Republic, Give central place to the soul, the Phaedrus too, and and the Symposium. So Socrates is very and is very interested in the soul. He, he does know the soul. You it's, define
1: erotics someplace as like the the ability uh, of a human being to form attachments.
0: Well, I, I talk about eros that way. Yes, uh, but but when he talks about erotics or the erotic things, I I think that means just knowledge of the soul because. Okay the you can say that the the soul has parts there's reason there's thumos there's desire but you can also talk about the things that reason loves the things that thumos loves the things mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. desire loves and so it's when you when you talk about the loves of the soul you're talking about the things that satisfy the different parts of the soul mm-hmm. so you can have sort of a static analysis of the parts of the soul or, and you can have a kind of dynamic analysis of the loves of the different parts of the soul and also the ways that the different parts of the soul can be in harmony or conflict with one another. And that's very much central to Plato's ethics and politics. Okay.
1: It's a much broader, Eros is a much broader conception than desire of women and beautiful boys in any
0: case. Yeah, it, it can be desire for truth. Uh, it can be desire for wholeness. It can be the desire for immortality. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's an absolutely fundamental force. And it's not just a psychological force. Ultimately it's a metaphysical force. It binds the universe together. This again, touches on these cosmological ideas, like the, the, you know, the, the purpo the purposive universe, the, The providential universe—the universe that's ordered towards the good. So yeah, there's there's a lot of it.
1: It occurs to me that this is just an example of how arrows can be used in a in a broader sense than than we're inclined to uh, to credit. Uh, I believe in Pericles' funeral oration in the historian Thucydides. Pericles urges his hearers to have an Eros for their city, for Athens itself. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, an irrational attachment, but, you know. Uh, and that would be. Even uh, what we would call patriotism as a type of yeah. Eros.
0: Yeah, and that would be something that the the thematic part of the soul. Yes, have. yes. So, Thumos has eros and desires, epithumia, they have eros. And you can talk about the, the love of wisdom, which is an intellectual right, yeah. eros. So eros is, I think, the object-directedness of the different parts of the soul, basically. Uh, it's, it's reaching out for the things that satisfy it. Uh, and so, when he talks about the erotic things, he's really talking about the uh, the dynamics of the of the soul, and he, he identifies the daimonion with a knowledge of eros, and he he does so in this dialogue, which I think is quite interesting, and I I, th- I think that this is a, a very clear indication of what. Socrates learned, perhaps from Aristophanes himself, this new focus on human nature uh, as and and knowledge of the human soul as absolutely crucial, as a sort of prerequisite for any kind of philosophical inquiry. You, You don't, you can't you can't teach other people philosophy, you can't even pursue philosophy. Yourself without first knowing yourself and your limits, philosophy in the sense of natural philosophy. So this is the the Socratic turn from basically science, natural philosophy, towards the human things, uh, towards the human soul. That's the first philosophy, I think, for Aristotle. First philosophy, uh, not for Aristotle, for for Socrates. First philosophy for Socrates is going to be erotics. It's going to be the study of the human soul and human things and the broader universe shows up to us from the human perspective hey uh we now have mike maxwell yes yes time to
1: bring in our
0: friend yeah Yeah. Yeah, one second mike can you hear us i can hear you can you hear me yeah you sound great
2: excellent well thank you for having me on i appreciate it where are you coming
1: from the other side I'm in of the Australia. Says, oh my! Oh my! From the antipodes. Okay. <laughs>
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of of antipodes and opposites, um, the discussion well, where it sort of ended up there is, is very interesting about Eros, um, because if you if you look at Eros in the context of Hesiod's Theogony, um, you know the 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 actual birth of the gods itself at the very beginning of the poem starts out with this play of opposites where first it's uh, first it's chaos, um, which is this esoteric thing. Um, It's dark, it's mysterious. And then you have earth that comes along and that's the opposite. It's the exoteric and very much, you know, surface level. What you see is what you get kind of thing. Um, And I believe right after that it's actually eros that's born um and the opposite comes in which is tartaros eros being you know it, it's it's hot it's it's um it's it's what's close it's it's an attractive force whereas tartaros is the exact opposite it's cold um it's it's deep in the earth it's distant it's where all of the, you know, the the titans themselves get exiled to, and so on and so forth. So I think this idea that Eros um, symbolizes, perhaps in a slightly esoteric way, what is close um, very much links up with what uh, you were discussing there about how Socrates um, he is very much concerned with the erotic things as opposed to um you know things that are a little bit more distant he's he's concerned with what's close he's concerned with what's close to human nature um he begins from where he is unlike um you know say Empedocles or Thales and so on the pre-Socratics that sort of you know they are they well and truly are the ones that are searching above the heavens and below the earth uh below the earth, you know, perhaps for something like Tartarus. Uh, so they're looking for what's distant and what's what's far away from the human condition. Socrates starts very much in the, the middle realm. He starts from where he is. And I think that this is really interesting uh, that that's what he does. And I think it's actually something that's quite brilliant. Uh, of course, it was something new for his time, but also very much ahead of his time. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that out there.
0: It fits in with the clouds because in the clouds, Socrates is shown being interested in gigantic things and minute things, but not middle-sized things, right? He's interested in the whole earth. Uh, He's interested in the heavens. He's also interested in the feet of fleas and the anuses of gnats, which are microscopic little things. uh, uh, but he's not interested in middle-sized things like his fellow human beings in the city around him. And I, I think that's, that's a wonderful parody uh, of, of science, because, of course, science today studies the ma- macrocosms and microcosms that are smaller than uh, f- flea's feet, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and bigger than anything that they, they could have, been, uh, could have been conceived uh, in, in that time. But again, where do we fit in uh, to this picture? Well, first of all, we're the ones who are looking at the big and the small. Uh and we have to we have to bring ourselves into an account of things because we're the ones who's who are doing this investigation. And we we can't forget to you know paint ourselves into the picture, basically.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that this is something that Socrates absolutely got right. And to his credit, I mean, I've, I've been a vocal critic of, Bla- of Plato and Socrates, but I also wrote on my Substack an article. Um, after my article critiquing Plato, I, I wrote an article explaining what I thought Socrates got right. And I think that this is really at the core of what he did get right. Uh, to his credit he discovered that morality is first philosophy and this is something i think that no other philosopher really deeply understood until perhaps the 19th century with the with the possible exception of maybe the cynics i'm not sure that's arguable but i guess what i'm saying is that socrates at least had the right project and his Mm -hmm. project was to ground other philosophical questions you know for example metaphysics or epistemology and so on, to ground those questions in questions of morality. All those other questions are really actually sub-questions of, or you know, perhaps a weaker formulation, at least lower priority than moral questions. Um, and I think that this is something that Nietzsche and the pragmatists in the 19th century would return to, but there's a huge gap between Socrates and them uh, where really it, the foundationalism begins from usually metaphysics. Nietzsche himself, he, uh, he says that truth is often something that we should not believe. That is, he says that what's true and what's good, they, they have this relationship, but it's, he, in typical Nietzschean fashion, he kind of turns it on its head. It's not, it's not the relationship but, that we think that they might have, but they do have a relationship. And the American pragmatists, they have a very interesting conception of truth where they make truth a species of good. The pragmatist theory of truth, very roughly, is that what's true is what's good to believe. That is, before you can know truth, before you can know what's true, you, ha- you first have to know ought. You can, mm-hmm. And they further, they say that – and this is the whole idea of pragmatism – that you can only really know truth – by its effects. So the pragmatic theory of truth is, I think, actually one of the most compatible with modern science, but that's a bit of a side issue. Um, it allows us to evaluate various scientific paradigms uh, much better. But this idea that you have to know good before you can know true, this strikes me as deeply, deeply Socratic. And, and I think it ties in with this turn from the, let's just say, pre-Aristophanian Socrates to the Socrates that we all know. It might, it might be
1: helpful to, to, under, to approach this issue by way of contrast. And uh, you know the, the pre-Socratic philosophers, the natural investigators, still have their heirs today, and uh, these people will tell you that you are essentially a collection of atoms, and it's pretty hard to under understand yourself as a collection of atoms, though uh, you may be in in some sense that. But that's not that's not the natural way that 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 people uh, is not a way that anybody can actually look at himself. Um, and, and if you try to live that way, you're, you're liable to come to grief.
2: Does this yeah, make it's any a way that you have to, to learn. You? It's a way that you have to learn to think but it's certainly not natural. That's not really. Exactly.
1: Exactly. It's yeah. Yeah. You have to, you have to start from kind of your own, the world of desires, the world, the world in which we actually live before you can understand the rest of nature. And if you try to understand yourself in terms of nature, then uh, you're going to have a, well, it's, it's simply perverse, you know, It, it, it it leads to bad practical consequences. I think if people see themselves
2: as, as an assemblage of matter. Yeah. And I think that Mm. if you, if, if you, if that is the consequence of that thinking, then that is in and of itself, a refutation of that thinking on a kind of quasi Socratic way of thinking, you know, it's like the Mm, sort of gigantic modus tollens where, um, if the conclusion uh, leads to, if, if the premise leads to that conclusion, then that premise is false. There's
1: something wrong with a Yes. The premise. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a, I, I think a tradition that runs from Socrates through Rousseau and Kant to William James and the pragmatists actually. Uh, and that, Basically, the, the argument is, is like this. There's a, a recognition that human reason is limited and that we might not be able to know in any certain sense the things that are most important to us. Uh, and, and that has to do with things like the immortality of the soul and the providential order of the universe, which are things that are being discussed in the Theodos. And yet, it's so important for us to have beliefs about the immortality of the soul and the providential order of the universe for living our lives that we are licensed to try again. And if we can't have knowledge in the proper sense then we should be willing to take a, a second best kind of knowledge uh, just because it's so important to be able to talk about these things. Now, why is it important to talk about these things? Well, it's important to talk about them for the care of the soul, for how we lead our lives in this world. And so in, in the Phaedo, Socrates says this, and this is on 205 of my book, I believe, as perhaps you do, that precise knowledge on that subject, namely the immortality of of the soul, is impossible or extremely difficult in our present life, but that it surely shows a very poor spirit not to examine thoroughly what is said about it and to desist before one is exhausted by an all-round investigation. One should achieve one of these things, learn the truth about these things, or find it for oneself or, if that is impossible, adopt the best and most irrefutable of men's theories. And it's, uh, it's anthropon logon, human logoi, as opposed to divine logoi. And born upon this, sail through the dangers of life as on a raft, unless someone should make that journey safer and less risky upon a firmer vessel of some divine doctrine. And that was that's a divine logos. So he's saying that... It would be wonderful if we had a divine Logos, a certain teaching about the immortality of the soul and the providential order of the cosmos. But if we don't, we still have to make a second best. And that second best is to take up the best and most irrefutable of human theories, human Logoi. And he weaves and unweaves some arguments for the immortality of the soul ultimately the arguments that he lays out are all ineffectual ineffectual but he he doesn't just have arguments in his quiver he also wants to talk about myths the uh, this this term the flight to the logo is called the flight to the logoi a turn towards human speeches if we can't have divine logos we can have the second best which is human logoi But human Logoi include myths. And so I I talk about this uh, after Socrates basically exhausts the arguments that he lays out for the immortality of the soul, he turns to myths and he weaves together established myths and new myths, if you will, as well as natural philosophy. So he creates a comprehensive myth about the afterlife. And after summarizing this comprehensive view of the afterlife, Socrates says the following, no sensible man would insist that these things are as I have described them. But I think it is fitting for a man to venture it, to risk it, risk believing, which is what William James talks about, right? The will to believe, taking a risk for the risk is a noble one that this or something like this is true about our souls and their dwelling places, since the soul is evidently immortal and a man should repeat this to himself as if it were an incantation, which is why I've been prolonging my my muthos, my tale. That is the reason that a man should be of good cheer about his own soul if during life he has ignored the pleasures of the body and its ornamentation as of no concern to him and doing him more harm than good, but has seriously concerned himself with the pleasures of learning and adorned his soul, not with alien, but with its own ornaments, namely moderation, righteousness, courage, freedom, and truth. And in that state awaits his journey to the underworld. Now, myths are likely stories. Uh, And he seems to be arguing here that if we can't have a certain story about these things, we should be willing to settle for likely stories because having a likely story, namely the, and the right likely story is going to have positive effects for how we lead our life. Now, if you look at Emile's book, uh, Emile, what am I saying? Rousseau's book, Emile. Yeah. Rousseau's Emile. There, I think it's in book four. There's this long uh, section called the profession of, of faith of a Savoyard vicar. And in there, this vicar from Savoy lays out his philosophy, and he talks about skepticism. He talks about how he came to believe that metaphysics can't teach us the truth about the soul and the cosmos, the existence of God, providence, etc. We can't know these things based on metaphysics, but it's so important to have beliefs about this that we are licensed to have a kind of leap of faith. And so he's making an appeal to practical reason in order to underwrite metaphysical beliefs about the soul and the afterlife and God. Now, flash forward a few decades to Kant's second critique, the critique of practical reason. In the critique of practical reason, Kant having basically destroyed the, the idea that we can have metaphysical certitude about the soul, God, the cosmos, especially things like providence, comes back to argue that practical reason requires us to posit God, a soul, and providence uh, that we cannot argue for uh, on, on strict metaphysical grounds. Now, that becomes a template for William James's pragmatism. That he lays out in places like *The Will to Believe*, and and so I think that there's a there's a Socratic origin to this. It's a kind of humanistic metaphysics. It's not humanistic skepticism, where you basically say, "Well, yeah, you know, we're 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 finite beings, and therefore we're trapped uh, behind a veil of appearances, and we can never." We should never bother ourselves with questions like the immortality of the soul. No, the, they, they argue that it's too important to have opinions about this to, uh, to basically give up once we have assayed the limits of reason. And therefore, we need to have another kind of reason or a second best route that can provide us with convictions that we can use to guide our lives about these important issues.
2: Yeah. I, I see where you're coming from there. I, I, and I agree actually, that this is something that we need to venture and that it's something that is certainly not, well, it's not certain that is, but I think also with, um, now it, de- it depends what sort of meant by myth, because for the Greeks, like the word myth, has a little bit more of a prosaic meaning for them than it does for us it it can also mean the myths of um you know the the myth of heracles or of icarus or you know all of these myths that we we regard as um, divine or transcendent and what have you but it also has a more prosaic meaning of narrative or story or a tale Right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that this is what Socrates perhaps means more. He, he means a tale um, more than, say, like the myth of, of, of Zeus or something. Um, at the same time, I think that the, the desire to write our own human myths does get into some dangerous territory, at least when it's overriding the myths of our culture. That, that we have already that are already in place because we have myths and, and by we, I would, I mean, hypothetically us as Greeks, you know, as the students of Socrates that he would be talking to in the, in the Phaedo. Um, now these myths of the soul are not Socratic myths, but they are still divine myths, but they're just not the myths, perhaps that Socrates finds salutary like there are many myths in about the soul in Greek mythology. Um, You know, you could think of something like the journey of Odysseus down into the underworld to speak with the souls of the dead, his dead comrades and so forth, or the myth of Orpheus going into the underworld. Um, There are many of, many of these myths in, in Greek mythology. Hades is this, shady place it's it's all these souls live a kind of very tenuous and flighty existence it's not a very nice conception of of the afterlife but at the same time and perhaps this may may be more obvious to us than it is to socrates this is actually a degradation of the originary indo-european conception of the soul which had a very definite um ontological status, I guess we could say. I mean, we could go into that later if perhaps, but let's just say that the soul, the idea of the soul kind of had somewhat changed by the time we get to the classical Greek age from earlier ages, even the Mycenaean Greeks, um, and that this conception of the soul essentially is bound up with um, ancestor worship and the hero cults, which were really the sort of glue that bound everything together into a cohesive society. Um, it really is what built everything in in Greece. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with speculation and looking into the metaphysical uh, depths of the soul in the way that Socrates does in the Phaedo and in other, other dialogues like the Republic and so on. Um but there's also a tendency in some sense to undermine it, to kind of overwrite and replace it. And I think that this, this kind of does get into a little bit of dangerous territory. Um, because the myths that Socrates tells about the soul in the dialogues very generally are, would have been quite unrecognizable to even a Greek of his time, much less a Greek of earlier times. Mm -hmm. Uh, So and and this this is gets into um, you know perhaps some of the charges and the accusations against Socrates in the the apology and in and uh, Xenophon's writings and everything um, introducing novel ideas and and new gods perhaps into the into the city as opposed to the, the, the gods of the city, which were these sort of, again, the civic glue that bound everything together. So metaphysical speculation is something I think that really does need to be entered into, especially if you, are, if you have a remotely traditional caste, traditionalist caste uh, to your thinking. It's something that needs to be entered upon with great trepidation. And it's quite understandable how some elements of Socrates' society would have seen that as something subversive and
0: threatening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are you familiar with the the myth at the end of the Gorgias? His account of the afterlife there. Um, no, I, I I can't remember that. Well, it's it's very interesting because he's he's talking in terms of uh, you know. The Greek deity Zeus and his sons. Uh, Yet at the same time, the the overall story that he he gives is very un-Greek. Because one of the things that's kind of depressing about the Greek myths about the afterlife is uh, well, you know, you you would rather be a peasant on the earth than king among the dead, uh, because there's no real moral order to it, uh, you know. You you die and you're you just sort of waste away in Hades. Uh, <clears throat> there doesn't seem to be, to be any justice to it. And Socrates in the Gorgias is very concerned with justice and judgment. And there's a there's a point in the Gorgias where he 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 swears an oath in, in a number of platonic dialogues by the dog. And he's accused of bringing in foreign gods. And this, this is true. And one of the, one of the variants of by the dog is by the dog, the Egyptians God, which is a reference to Anubis, who is the jackal headed God, uh, who is the psychopomp. Uh, he was the God who would lead you to, Judgment in the afterlife, somewhat like Hermes. Yeah, yeah, and he—I I think that that is the clue to understanding what Socrates is doing in the Gorgias, uh, because he is is basically trying to get Callicles to contemplate what his soul is going to be judged uh, judged as uh, in the afterlife if, if this is true. And he's acting as a psychopomp, he's basically leading us all to contemplate our fate after death if we were judged based on virtue. And our lot in the afterlife were assigned on the basis of virtue. This is a very Egyptian idea of the afterlife. And I think that Socrates is is taking uh, this Egyptian idea of the afterlife and the judgment of the soul Uh, And recasting it uh, in Greek terms, because he thinks that this is salutary; uh, that he thinks this is a superior, uh, superior picture of the afterlife than the ones that that, uh, was current in the Greek culture at at his time. And uh, he's giving a little clue as to its origin with uh, swearing this oath by the god, uh, by the dog, the the Egyptians' god. he's showing us where to look for the basis of this, this new myth. So there's truth to the claim that Socrates is introducing new novel gods. He's not introducing novel gods in the sense of saying that the indefinite is a God, right? Or air is divine. Like the, the natural philosophers, he's actually introducing foreign myths that have everything to do with the care of the soul and provide arguments for cultivating virtue in this life and better arguments for cultivating virtue than the existing image of, of the afterlife that you, you get from, say, Homer.
2: Yeah, in that sense, it is. it really does have a strong echo with, the pragmatic notion of truth that what is good is what we ought to believe yeah and that per- perhaps the the um, uh, i'm so, I lost the name of it here uh, the correspondence theory of truth the idea that truth is a agreement between a state of affairs in your mind the state of affairs outside is perhaps not the right way of thinking of truth because for the greek certainly um, the myths and especially the Homeric myths would have been considered to be to have a kind of epistemic authority, especially Homer, where you would have uh, rhetoricians and essentially the equivalent of lawyers in the agora that were, if if you could if you could cite a point, if your point could be cited as uh, having a precedent in Homer you won the argument, and that was the end of the story. Um, So these traditional stories were really the closest thing to what we think of as the authority of science today. Or scripture. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, So Socrates is coming in and saying, okay, well, the highest epistemic authority is one thing, but how you should think about these things is perhaps another, another thing altogether. And that truth really is what is edifying as much as it is what agrees with this authority kind of thing. So I I think there is that sort of agreement between Socrates or that proto-pragmatic way of looking at things that that Socrates actually has.
0: In the Timaeus, there's a distinction between a, uh, a true... Logos, I think it's orthos logos and a likely logos, an ikos logos, and I, I think that that distinction is exactly the distinction that he makes between a divine logos and a human logos in the Phaedo, and the, a human logos is therefore more or less likely story, right? And if if it's a story about stuff that we cannot see or hear or touch, uh, in this world, then we've got to have some grounds for cho- picking and choosing among those stories about things that transcend our experience. And the, what makes this a likely story? It, it's not likeliness, uh, you know, likelihood in the sense, in the sense of, uh, correspondence theory of truth. Ultimately, it's got to be what is most salutary in a moral sense uh, in, in terms of caring for the soul. And for Socrates, that means cultivating virtue in this life. And so if you're trying to figure out what the afterlife has in store and you're picking and choosing. And uh, you can, uh, of course, be eclectic because the Greeks were very eclectic about myths. There's a really interesting book by Paul Vane who's a French classicist called Did the Greeks Believe Their Myths? And Greek myths were like the myths of the Egyptians or the Hindus uh, or other other peoples, often quite contradictory. They were changed constantly. Poets could change the the myths in the retelling. And so there was some criterion of truth other than just correspondence and and there was certainly no sense of a canonized scripture that you couldn't depart from and in fact if you tried to canonize it and make it all consistent it wouldn't make any sense this was true for the egyptians you know if you tried to come up with a canonical set of teachings about the god horus you couldn't do it because there are too many contradictions the horus worshipped in edfu was different from the horus worshipped somewhere else <laughs> and uh, there were there you, were Hellenistic
1: you, scholars that tried to do this weren't weren't there rationalize the myths and collect them and and had a yeah. pretty difficult time of it i believe yeah
0: yeah yeah and uh, and, and so the the goal for, for socrates uh, the the criterion is basically going to be serviceability in in moral and beyond that, political affairs. And of course, they thought of politics as as very much caught up with morals. The the purpose of the polis was not just to allow you to trade peacefully (laughs) with one another. Uh, The purpose of the polis was the good life, which meant encouraging virtue and culture and taste and things that transcend what, classical liberals think the purpose of politics is. So, th- yeah, I, I think that he would look at Egyptian mythology and and think there's something more salutary about the Egyptian view of the afterlife than the Greek view. And he's trying to subtly introduce something that's sort of Egyptian uh, in the context of the Gorgias. And he's playing the role of Anubis. He's leading... Calicles before the judge, of judges of the afterlife, and forcing him to ask himself, you know, how, how would you fare before these judges, given the the life that you've led uh, so far, and uh, the the hope is that uh, uh, he's going to scare this guy into being a little more careful uh, about his soul.
2: Yeah, that's um the, this idea that the the myths are somewhat incommensurable with each other is is actually what what you mentioned there greg before about how the anubis of you know the different cities in egypt might have been radically different or at least somewhat different from other cities this is echoed very much in greece where um you know the athena of athens itself might have been quite different from the athena in um, Delos or, or one of the other city-states, um, that these there, there was essentially a kind of hyper-localism in terms of mythology and in terms of worship and everything. This is part of why the different city-states had different patron deities. Um, so I think that this is actually uh, something that is quite natively Greek and indeed something that's actually quite natively Indo-European as well. Um, So, yeah, I think uh, that Socrates, what what he's trying to do here um, is is basically to, I I was going to say relativize uh, these myths, but I think that that's maybe too strong of a word. But I I think you see what I mean, though. It's it's that different beliefs and different understandings of at least the, the deities themselves, but also perhaps of the soul, are fitted to different people. So truth has this kind of pluralistic meaning um, in this conception that what what you should believe is, is, you know, what's true is what you ought to believe kind of thing. Um, And this is, of course, echoed all throughout the Socratic dialogues where uh, Socrates himself basically says that you know, different people should believe different things about these. Like, you know, uh, the the philosopher kings might have a different conception of of the soul than the peasant or the the, the yeoman farmer or something like that. Um, it's 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 the much maligned idea of the noble lie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that different people. Are fitted to different beliefs, and that this is something that's that's okay. That the truth doesn't have this univocality to it. Um, that you know, people really think that, especially in the 20th century, that this is really the preserve of postmodernism. It's the it's the it, it's it's this relativistic idea of truth is something that's inherently left wing it's actually much more traditional than we think. And it actually might be the original conception of truth
0: historically anyway. Um, Yeah. It's interesting that if you look at the ancient Egyptians, uh, what they tried to do is reconcile these different myths. This was sort of later in their history. By the time you get to the 19th dynasty, there's evidence that this was going on. That the welter of different gods and contradictory stories about the same gods in one place or the other is just treated as this is just the way the world is. This is the world of appearance. This is the world of manifestation. The world of of appearance is always plural, plural. It's going to be filled with contradictions and puzzlements, and we don't have to worry too much about these things. But behind it all is one order, one truth, and indeed one God. And so there is a, a kind of mystical monotheism that that starts being articulated in the 19th dynasty. This is after Akhenaten's destructive monotheism, uh, where... You have this idea that there's there's somehow one divine principle, and that this divine principle perforce has to manifest itself in multiple and even contradictory ways to human beings there's there's just a, this is what happens when you go down one metaphysical level to the world that we live in and so the the plurality of beliefs within Egypt itself the plurality of gods within Egypt itself, and then the plurality of beliefs and gods in the world beyond Egypt's borders. All of that is just treated as sort of metaphysically necessary, but there's some kind of underlying truth, a single unifying underlying truth beyond that. Now, that is the origin of this perennial philosophy idea uh that we we get from late antiquity uh, jan osman has has uh cited sources as early as the as the 19th dynasty for this so it goes way back before greco-roman egypt and i i i think that that when, when we talk about traditionalism with a capital t right this idea of the transcendent unity of religions and so forth that's a very old idea. And so it's a very old idea that is motivated by this puzzling plurality. And there, there are two ways you can, you can deal with this plurality though. You can, you can say that the plurality of different beliefs uh, is false. You know, this is the, this is the, the way that Akhenaten did it. He says, there's, there's one God and his name is the Aton. And, all the other gods are false this is the uh, the view that you had with the with the jews the god of the jews there's one true god and all these other gods are false and then there there's this mystical kind of monotheism which osman calls cosmotheism which has nothing to do with william pierce's uh, use of that term where you have a, a sense that yes there's there's one divine principle All these other divine principles and myths, all these other stories, they're not false. What they are is they are metaphysically lower level accommodations of this transcendent truth in this world that we live in. Accommodations to to different tribes of people, different locations and so forth it's inevitable that there's going to be a plurality of different manifestations of this one principle. And therefore, they're not false. They're they're in some way necessary. And this was treated as a basis for regarding other people's gods as what this did is it made the pantheons of different nations into a kind of language. Right? Just as you can say that there's one phenomenon of dogs and many different words for dog, right, in different languages. You can say there's one God and many different mythologies referring to that. And what it made it possible to do is, you know, approach people with different mythologies and try and come up with uh, translation manuals <laughs> so that they could use these for communication purposes. And and that, that I think fits in with the very pragmatic attitudes towards myths that, that Vane talks about when he talks about did they believe their myths? They didn't believe them in the sense of like a single canonical scriptural source. They didn't, you know, that 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 simply was foreign to them. Uh, and they would use myths as as a kind of language for interpreting things, for reconciling conflicting tribes, they would, they would compare their stories and try and find a way that they can reconcile their conflicts based on, on mythology. And if, uh, if there was no reconciliation, then they would try and come up with something like, you know, a common ancestor or something like that. Uh, And, and I think that that's a, that's a very human thing uh, to do. And uh, I, I, I see what Socrates is doing uh, as, as consistent with that. But w- he's being guided, though, by not just political pragmatism, yep. you know, coming up with a treaty, ending a war, marrying a princess off or something like that that Vane talks about. But he's, he's guided by a pragmatism about basically it's a moral psychological pragmatism. It's what he calls the care of the soul. It's very interesting that you
2: raise the Egyptian, um, shall we say, cosmopolitical conception of the gods, this, this idea of a transcendent truth that unifies all these incoherent, disparate, smaller truths. It's interesting that you raise that as um, in the Egyptian context of the 19th dynasty, because, because of course, the 19th dynasty was in some ways, kind of like the Periclean Greece of its time, it was the high culture, really the the, the cultural high point of it, Egypt. It was the final sunrise before that culture subsided into the into the dusk forever. It was really the last hurrah for them, um, just as the it was in Greece. In Socrates' time, um, I think that there is a very strong correspondence that you see, and and as it was in Rome as well, when you see this esotericism come in in the the later stages of of the Roman Empire. I think there's a very, very strong correspondence that you see, and there is clearly some causal thing going on, which direction it goes, I'm not sure, where when a society is about to die... It it brings in this transcendent idea that the myths themselves can be unified in some way, that each of these disparate, local,, uh, perhaps somewhat more prosaic myths are, in fact, distortions of, or maybe more um, maybe more charitably, emanations from a kind of unified, monistic, transcendent truth. What's interesting to me is that this seems to come in at the end of a civilization and it seems to augur the end. Um, perhaps this is what Hegel meant when he said that uh, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, right? Um, these things seem to be a kind of bellwether as a, a kind of sickness in society that it is about to you know go the way of the dodo and i think that perhaps in a more uh, in a more sort of like rationalistic way of looking at it what it is is it's really a way to reconcile the demands of empire it's really an and it, it is an effect of imperialism when you see this come in it's a society that has grown to a point where it really needs to it, it needs to be able to reconcile these differences. It needs to be able to unify them under what amounts to a kind of state cult. Um, I, I, it, it, it was it was a, it's a good analogy that you said to think of it as a kind of language. It's like a lingua franca that all of these different, Localities that may have their own ideas, that may have their own ways of doing things, their own folk ways, their own sort of epistemic worlds and moral worlds that are incommensurable with all the others. It's a way of giving them a uh, way to talk to each other and something to unite behind, a flag to rally around, that we are, in fact, all the same at the end of the day. We really all do believe the same thing. Uh, we are looking at the same truth uh, we're just looking at it through a kind of distorted lens. you're looking at it through um you know your Lacedaemonian way I'm looking at it through my Athenian way, and so on and so forth. but at the end of the day, what the myths are finally doing is they are describing the world they're actually describing this metaphysical world over and above the um you know, lower world that we all inhabit, the, the the sort of material realm. What these myths are doing is they're describing that transcendent realm and they're doing it in such a way that they're all kind of giving us a piece of the puzzle and they're all, you know, not quite ex- like exactly true, but they're all getting at the same kind of truth. Um, this is something that is native to a particular epoch in, in societies and how they how they evolve and i think it's interesting that this seems to have come up at the same stage in the egyptian world as it did in the greek world and socrates is really at at the helm he's he's really the flagship um you know figure of that movement in greece
0: Yeah, I I think, though, that the the big question is, is this healthy or unhealthy? And I think it's uh, ultimately it's healthy because, well, uh, we do have this faculty of reason and reason does help us take puzzling phenomena and come up with explanations and systematizations for it. Uh, if we live in a world where we are, and it's not just empires; it's also trade. Uh, it's it's this this cliche that people love in in today's rapidly shrinking world. Right? Well, the right. world's been shrinking for thousands of years. <laughs> it's getting we're getting closer and closer together, and therefore, well, we need to, f- to figure out ways of, of communicating with one another. I think that reason. Is a good thing, and that what, what we're talking about here is we're talking about the, the sort of the inevitable emergence of critical rationality in societies. And now there there are two ways that that can happen. One is a is a destructive way where it just sort of runs amok. It's sort of it's sort of like Reddit or the new atheism or the you know village atheism kind of stuff you know boy objectivist behavior that kind of stuff that that's the early phase that's the first phase of it and then people can observe all kinds of negative consequences they can observe forms of self contradictions uh, but also pragmatically negative consequences for this and they say okay back to the drawing board we need to we need to reassess things maybe we need to start anew take a step back. I see that as happening with Aristophanes and Socrates. And that leads to the relaunching of Greek philosophy, the reorientation of Greek philosophy from things above the heavens and below the earth, the, the macrocosm and the microcosm towards the middle realm, the metaxu, the mesocosm, I guess, which is the human world and the problems of the human world, which are essentially moral and political. They're, they're, all problems connected with aughts. So the question is, how do, we, how do we situate reason within the context of society? And so philosophy begins anew, and it begins anew in a somewhat chastened way. I see this as what's being discussed in the Phaedo. I also see this as what's happened in the, in the 18th century, with uh, Rousseau, Rousseau's looking at the Enlightenment, and uh, he's seeing that this isn't making men happier. <laughs> you know, his his discourse on the sciences and the arts is is, is a very powerful critique of progress. And in in Emile, he takes another stab at Enlightenment, if you will, from a Consciously moral-centered point of view rather than a speculative point of view, and uh, tries to relaunch it, uh, and that's the template for what Kant does. Uh, it's a template for what William James does later. I, I think it's a it's a it's a valid approach to philosophy. The the great question is though, and and this is something that cyclical historians like Vico forces to confront is that when we arrive at a stage in cultural evolution where reason emerges and where it can start making sense of things, is this always connected with the devitalization and civilizational decline? Or is it possible for us to, uh, strike some kind of balance or create some kind of synthesis. I think of somebody like Ortega y Gasset, who was a a vitalist, and he was trying to uh, trying to articulate that the, the the possibility of vital reason as opposed to a kind of uh, stultifying rationalism. Th- that that's that's really the great question uh, that we face today. Does human life require that we become happy, healthy, but somewhat stupid barbarians again? Uh, are we just going to be going through this Vikian cycle, right? Where there is some um, vital barbarism and then the barbarism of reflection, which is devitalized and decadent, and then things fall apart. And then we start all over again. Or is it, is it possible for us to reconcile the activities of reason with the needs of human life. I, I think that's that's what Socratic philosophy is trying to do. I think that's what pragmatism is trying to do. I think that's what Kantian critical philosophy is trying to do. I think that's what Rousseau is trying to do a, as well in, in, in Emile.
2: Yeah. Um, it's It strikes me, and I'll, I'll leave this as the sort of my final thought here on Socratic dialogues. I really did enjoy reading your book, by the way. I thought that was it was it was a very good exposition of these things in, in quite a digestible way. And I actually had never considered the idea of Aristophanes having perhaps initiated a turn in Socratic thinking. So that was cool. But I think the that that turn, the turn that Socrates makes from the Socrates of the clouds to the Socrates of the Platonic dialogues is really a a turn of kind of humility uh, where rather than hubristically inquiring into things that humans really have no business in inquiring into or limited business uh, in inquiring into, you know, the anuses of gnats and so on. (laughs) um, Rather than that being the object of uh, reason, the real object of reason is ourselves and it's the things in the middle realm. It's the things uh, it, that that's that move of Socrates from Aristophanes to Plato is really a kind of coming down to earth. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I think that this is sort of an anti hubristic move. And, you know, it's it's a very humble it's a humbling of philosophy, a humbling of reason, a putting of it in its right place and that the only if reason, which does seem to flourish at a certain stage in, in human societies, if reason is not to kind of capsize the boat or to become this universal acid that dissolves all social bonds and leads us into, you know, every every man inhabiting his own subreddit or whatever, yeah. um, then I think what reason what needs to happen is that reason needs to be put in its place, is that reason needs to be subordinated to something. There needs to be certain things, and here my counter-enlightenment roots are going to show, there needs to be certain things that reason is forbidden to inquire into. Certain, let's just say, presuppositions or assumptions or myths, shall we say, that reason is not allowed to touch. Certain things that are off-limits, basically that reason has its place, but it's a subordinate place to something deeper um, that is really at the core of the social order and that keeps it running. Um, and, and I think that this, the Socrates perhaps of some of the dialogues runs a little bit afoul of this and that the hubristic the hubris seems to come back a little bit Um you could think of something like the, the Parmenides dialogue, which is actually one of my favorites. <laughs> I just love the audacity of it. Um, but there are certain things that reason should not be allowed to inquire into lest it tip over society. And I think if we're ever going to escape that
0: vicious cycle, that that's what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that what Aristophanes would say is, yeah, that's all well and good, but there's going to be a just speech showing up fashionably at <laughs> wearing lots of bling and with a silver tongue. And he's going to be able to poke holes in those beliefs that are sacrosanct. And it'll be relatively easy for him to, to overthrow that and... Therefore, it's not an adequate, it's not an adequate foundation to just try and make sure that this this guy doesn't ever show up on the scene because there's going to be whole crops of these guys with every generation, and they're going to be among the cleverer people in every generation. And therefore, there's got to be a way to refound tradition on on something more than just tradition and and keeping it basically free from criticism and i think that's important there's there's another thing here that i want to bring in and this this of course is one of my big interests which is hermeneutics it's uh, heidegger's uh, her- phenomenological hermeneutics heidegger and gadamer what I think that Heidegger shows and Gautamer makes even more clear is that the activity of reason always presupposes unreason, if you will. The reflective activity of philosophy or just criticism of any, uh, of any sort is, is like a little clearing in a very dark forest and that dark forest consists of things that we are presupposing but not reflecting upon and that's how we live life is primarily lived in a non-reflective way and reason and ref- and reflection are little islands in basically unreflective practices and that that that's how we are, and therefore, the idea that reason can emancipate itself from unreason is is really folly. It can emancipate itself, but there's still the possibility of bringing some order into uh into the world that's given us uh, and you know no intelligent person can just take a body of myths and have it plopped in front of them. Uh, and to uh, venerate it without coming to cr- to question and criticize it, the more you travel, the more you think uh, it's just inevitable that there's going to be some uh, there's there's going to be some loose ends, some contradictions, some threads that that need to be explored. And also, uh, people can make arguments about the pragmatic results. I think Socrates and, and Plato make very good arguments that Homeric myths are are not the most salutary myths for the Greeks to to follow, and that it would be better for the Greeks to have better myths and better gods. That, and that's ultimately, I think, what what's going on here is there's there's a kind of religious reformation that's unleashed. And once you have, and this is something that's, that's clear in the Euthyphro and, and, and in my discussion of the Euthyphro in the, in the book, Socrates ultimately has a standard higher than the gods, and that's a standard of what's right by nature. And in light of a standard of what's right by nature, you can distinguish between good and bad myths. And you yourself are talking about having an understanding of what's good. Well, if you have an understanding of the good that tells you that certain myths are good by that, that same criterion is going to condemn others as bad. Uh, And so there's, there's kind of a, a reformation that's taking place. Once you have an independent, understanding of what's good. Well, that's potentially revolutionary because, uh, and and of course there are two ways you can uh, follow that. One is you can say, just wipe away, you know, everything, clean slate. It's like uh, the Freud of the future of an illusion where he's talking about our God Logos. He actually uses that phrase and how we're going to progress away from all this, superstition and nonsense, right? Just wipe the slate clean. But then there's the other, the other approach, which is to say, well, what about moral education? What about human inequality? This is something that Freud confronted late in his life when he wrote The Future of an Illusion. It's as if he gave in to the arguments of his critic, uh, his imaginary critic in uh, The Future of an Illusion. And he came to realize, well, ba- basically you can't get to a fully enlightened and emancipated mind. And, and that that then forces you to deal with in a, in a more selective way with moral opinions and religion, things like that. And instead of sweeping it all away and replacing it with truth with the capital T, you start picking and choosing and sorting through these things and and trying to select the, the things that are better, discount the things that are not good, and improve the gods, if you will. Socrates has set himself up as a judge over the gods. This is something that knowledge of natural right allows you to do. It's very discomforting for pious people, but the Greeks weren't that fundamentalistic to begin with. Again, they didn't have canonical scriptures and and rigid ideas of orthodoxy like uh, came out of Judaism. They had a pretty pragmatic view of their religion anyway, and but Socrates is saying, okay, that pragmatism can be guided by by nature uh, or by an understanding of what's right by nature, and that once you can launch this critical project, you can reform religion to make it more salutary. And you, you, you can make, you can improve the Greeks. You, know, you can improve the gods. You can have PG rated gods who are actually people that you'd like your your children to, <laughs> your children to Im- uh, imitate.
2: Yeah. I, uh, I agree that this is the fundamental point of most of the Socratic dialogues ultimately are sort of leading to this point. And the Euthyphro is is one of the most explicit of that, that Socrates is basically setting himself up as an epistemic and moral authority above Zeus or above the gods in general or above the poets even. Um, And that ultimately where you come down on whether that's a good thing is something that is really more, a matter of constitution and one's own character this is something that either strikes you as bold and uh you know the adventurous or you know that's that's high and transcendent or it strikes you as something that's that's deeply flawed um and i think that that point that heideggerian point of the sovereignty of unreason really is is very crucial here because whether it's nature or whether it's the will of zeus you have to start from somewhere there's always an axiom there's always a an assumption or a starting point there's always a brute fact that reason starts from and that is not that reason cannot inquire into without essentially dissolving reason itself and that the reason as consistently applied and even applied to itself, looking at reason and what it is and what it's doing, what its project is, leads you to this understanding that there is, there are these brute facts in the world, these these things that just have to be taken on faith per se. You have to start somewhere. You have to take something on faith and that that something is going to sort of dictate and govern the whole chain of reasoning that comes after it. And um, I, I, I suppose it, it it just depends how you – how it strikes you from a very much a, an intuitive standpoint, whether each man sort of be, becoming his own highest authority and setting his own axioms for himself out of his own intuition, um, whether that's a good thing or whether um, – these things, these axioms uh, need to be received from tradition. I I think it just really depends on what kind of cast of mind you have, whether you see that as something that's good or bad. And in any of the writing that I've done um, critiquing Socrates and Plato, where I come down on that is that that is a destructive thing. Um, But I think it's very hard to, argue beyond that, whether or not it is, it's just that if you, if you start from that assumption, if you start from that point, if that's your intuition, then Socrates is going to strike you as, as somebody that it was, that really did something that really wronged Greece in a very fundamental way. But if you start from the assumption that um, inquiry can kind of lead that inquiry should be free in every direction, that, so of course Socrates really is the patron saint of philosophy and the history of ideas ultimately. So it's yeah these things are very there's a lot more to be said about it but I think that that's that's a good place for me to sort of come down on it.
0: Yeah, we have one question here and then I want to wrap up because we've been uh, we've been going on well I've been going on for more than 2 hours. So and you've been on for more than an hour and We don't want to overtax ourselves and our audience. So let me just find this question quickly and we'll deal with it and we'll call it a really good show. So Doubting Thomas has written in with 14 U.S. dollars. Thank you. Is there any direct connection between the myth of Ur and the Indian ideas of reincarnation? Is there a Persian or Scythian connection or is it just old Mercury spinning that same old yarn. Thanks for the great stream. Well, the myth of Ur, of course, is at the end of the Republic. It's a very different myth from the one at the end of the Gorgias or the Phaedo, which is in itself an interesting thing. Just a little aside, there was a wonderful writer named J. N. Finley. He wrote books on Kant. He wrote books on Hegel. He wrote books on Plato, uh, uh, this fabulous book on Plato called Plato, the written and unwritten dialectic. I believe that was the title. Uh, He translated Husserl's uh, two volume massive work, uh, the logical investigations into English and did a fantastic job of that. He's a very, very uh, talented philosopher. And my favorite Findlay article is called the myths of Plato. And you have to understand that Findlay was a believing theosophist. He was a follower of, of, Madame Blavatsky. And so he surveys the myths in the platonic dialogues. And he says things like this doesn't strike me as myth- mythical at all. This is very much like something in, <laughs> that's the, you know, that's, that's held by this school of Adanta, and so forth. And I, I, just, I love that because it was so a uh, matter of fact uh, and metaphysical and um, it just doesn't strike me as mythical at all. But anyway, if you do look at the myth of Ur, it's very different from other myths. But the myth of Ur does involve reincarnation. Now, the closest cultural, I guess, uh, predecessor to talk of reincarnation would be the Pythagoreans. And of course, Plato was very uh, familiar with the Pythagoreans. And Socrates was familiar with the Pythagoreans. In fact, some of his friends on the day that he died were Pythagoreans. Asimius and Keves were Pythagoreans, and they were the main interlocutors in the Phaedo. So that, I think, is probably what's being referred to, if he's referring to anything, any any particular doctrine of, of transmigration. But of course, where did the Pythagoreans get this? There are all kinds of, of questions like that. These are very, very ancient ideas. So it could be a Persian source or a Scythian connection or what you're just saying is older and older Indo-European sources. That, that's perfectly possible. Uh, I, I just don't know. But the idea of, of reincarnation was something that was fervently believed by people that Socrates talked to on the day that he died that Plato was quite familiar with and therefore an idea of reincarnation in the myth of Ur at the end of the Republic doesn't require sources so far afield as, as Scythia or Persia.
2: Mike, do you want to say
0: anything about this?
2: The issue of reincarnation is something that I go back and forth on a lot because um, my Concern. one of my concerns is with Indo-European reconstruction and the question of is reincarnation something that is originary that did the proto-Indo Europeans believe this, or is this something that sort of came along later on? Um, if you look at certainly the Greeks and the Romans, reincarnation is a, is a belief that comes in late, um, where it comes from. I'm not entirely sure, but it certainly is not there. Um, from what we can reconstruct of the idea of the hero cults and the ancestor cult that these things were based upon, um, reincarnation is very hard to square with that. Uh, certainly the, the Aryas had it, um, at least at some stage. If you look at the Vedas, and the Vedas are a vast and sprawling complex of texts, you could fit many, many Iliads and Odysseys within the Vedas. Um, but you can kind of get an idea of the sequence of how they were written. If you just basically look at the traditional ordering of them, like the Rig Veda coming first and so on and so forth, the earliest strata of the Vedas, there's very little said and maybe nothing that I can really think of said about reincarnation. This is something that comes in a little bit later, um, the only major branch that I'm aware of that has reincarnation right from the start is the Germanic branch. And, but of course the Germanic texts that we get come to us from very late times, from the, the, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, whereas the, uh, the Rig Veda is, is something like 3,500 years old. Um, so they certainly do have reincarnation, but you know, is that something originary? I'm not entirely sure. I, as I say, I go back and forth on this. Sometimes, you know, it depends whether it's a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday or what side of the bed you get me up on, whether I think reincarnation is really actually Indo-European or not. Um, but certainly the Greeks were one of the, the peoples that got it last. Where it came from, you know, I'm not entirely sure. If it's something that is not originary to the Indo-Europeans, It this may just be something that is... Um, evolved uh, um, I, I forget what the word is, but yeah, it, it's something that might may invo- evolve spontaneously that meets a kind of psychological need at a certain point in the development of a people. But I'm not, I, I, I really think that at least in the case of the Greeks and the Romans, that this is something that if it was originary, if it did, does go back to the uh, Urheimat and, on the Pontic Steppe, that it's something that they lost at, at a certain stage, and that it came back later. It might have come from, you know, that there there was certainly some distant contacts with the East. Uh, it's very unlikely that it would have come from Egypt, because they you didn't know, the, believe that. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the mythic complex, of uh, the, the metaphysical ideas of the Egyptians don't really jive with that. Of course, neither did the metaphysical ideas of, of, of the Greeks and Romans um, un, until a certain point later. So, you know, um, tentatively, I guess I would say that it's something that they uh, evolved spontaneously at a certain point that, um, that helped them in some way. Uh, that, that, that met a kind of psychological need that they had. I don't think it's something that they would have adapted from any of the
0: societies that were immediately surrounding them. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. uh, Everybody out there listening and thank you, Mike, for, for uh, showing up and uh, contributing. Thank you, Roger. Uh, I'm sorry you couldn't stay the whole time, but I re- very much appreciate what you had to say as well. Folks, uh, if you haven't read The Trial of Socrates, you might be concluding that it's something you want to read. So please do to pick it up. It is available from Countercurrents. We are going to continue doing these book clubs on the first Saturday of each month as much as possible. And the next one will be on Roger Devlin's book, the uh, which it was one of our best-selling books, uh, Sexual Utopia in Power. So join us in the, the first Saturday of next month for Roger Devlin's Sexual Utopia in Power. Uh, he will be our guest of honor, of course. I will be hosting. And we're still trying to put together a panel uh, for that. So as soon as we get the panel Uh, fixed, we will definitely, uh, let you know who's going to be participating. I like this format. I, I want to continue doing this. I'd like to do it once a month, every, every month, uh, for years to come. And I, I think that it's already good and it's just going to get better as we get, uh, more practiced at it. So thank you very much, uh, for being a part of this experiment. Uh, Next week, we do not yet have a guest for CounterCurrents Radio. So if you want to nominate somebody, just uh, send, me a, send me an email. I've, I've got several possible people, but we're still juggling schedules and comparing uh, uh, calendars. So if there are people that you want to hear from, uh, definitely let us know. Uh, Mike, how do people follow your work? Um, so, yeah,
2: if you go to ImperiumPress.org, uh, that is the hu- central hub for anything to do with myself, Imperium Press, uh, any, any of the sort of things that surround our little, our little corner of this sphere, um, you can find me on Telegram. If you go to at Imperium Press official, that is our Telegram page. So give us a follow and uh, go to Imperium Press. And if you want to follow us on other social media, uh, I forget what the link is <laughs> at the top. But, uh, um, yeah, you, you, I think it's just follow. So if you if you want to look us up on social media, you just go to ImperiumPress.org and uh, just look at the links at the top. And you can find our Telegram page and everything else or uh, have a look at our catalog as well. So. Thank you very much for having me on, Greg. It's been a very, uh, very fun discussion, and I really did enjoy reading your book. Actually, um, it's 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 a very digestible format. I really like the um, the fact that I think the fact that it was transcribed from lectures really adds to its accessibility. But there were a couple of surprises in there too. It, it um, there was a few things in there that I wasn't aware of about um, Plato, and there's some unique takes on the socratic dialogues
0: so i thought it was really good i really did enjoy it thank you so much i really appreciate that folks we will be back next week with another episode of countercurrents radio thank you very much